Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Cancer Fight Podcast, recorded in Louisville, Kentucky, and produced by the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Cancer Fight aims to highlight the stories of fighters and survivors of all forms of cancer, as well as educate the public about prevention and awareness. I'm your host, Dr. Whitney Jones, a gastroenterologist and founder of the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Welcome to Cancer Fight. Today, we're talking with Tom Tucker, Dr. Tom Tucker, who is the Senior Director for Cancer Surveillance at the Markey Cancer Center in the University of Kentucky, and so many other titles that I cannot stay in the 45-minute time frame as I welcome him. Tom Tucker, welcome to Cancer Fight. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me, Dr. Jones. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Tom Tucker? We all know you here in Kentucky, and I would suggest that all of the people in cancer surveillance around the world would know who you are. But for our guests, give us a short bio of Tom Tucker, the person, where you came from, what you did in education, where you led to, and and the important things about you. Sure. I I grew up in, in a very small town in central eastern Kansas. In some ways, it was one of those idyllic ways to grow up. It was a town of about 2,500 people, beautiful little community, the quintessential all-American town. Um, Everybody knew everyone else, and there are some wonderful strengths to that, and there are some challenges to it as well, but it was a great place to grow up, had wonderful parents, although I've always wondered why Tom Tucker, they must have known the old nursery rhyme about little Tommy Tucker singing for his supper. In fact, my mother had me on a float in an old Settler's Day parade we had every September with a big orange uh, bib and a block of bread and uh, butter on a table as little Tommy Tucker and it scarred me for life. So no, actually it was a great place to grow up and I uh, attended uh, University of of Kansas after uh, after graduating from high school. Um, uh, again, uh, undergraduate degrees are wonderful. Um, I I met my lovely wife. Uh, was in a fraternity, and one of the ways you uh, survived is you waited tables in the sorority. And the good news in that was you got all the food you could eat, twenty six dollars a week, and all the dates you wanted. So it was uh, it was great. Uh, we met. Uh, we were married uh, at the end of uh, college, and we have been married for fifty one years. Um, so it's my good fortune to have somebody who's willing to hang out with me that long. Uh, I'd have thrown me out a long time ago, but uh, she uh, she's lovely. And uh, after that, uh, we moved to Kansas City, and I needed to find a job. Um, and I actually saw an ad for the American Cancer Society, and I applied for it, and they hired me. And it was not from a family thing. It was really from just needing to have employment. And one of the things that happened is that I fell in love with the work. It made such good sense. I'm a product of the 60s, so we all wanted to save the world. And this was a a pact I'd made with myself when I graduated that I would attempt to do something that wasn't just about me, but it was about potentially helping other people. I think you would know that a lot of people who go into medicine feel the same way. And so this really uh, gave me that feeling of satisfaction of trying to address, uh, which remains a major health issue uh, 
in the United States. So that was very satisfying. The work there was um, quite rewarding. And uh, after a short period of time, about three years, I, uh, I was recruited to the National Office of the American Cancer Society, then in New York City, it's now in Atlanta. But uh, my wife and I moved from Kansas to New York City. And uh, I remember feeling uh, a bit out of place, a kid from the little town in Kansas. And I would get my sandwich at the deli and walk down to the UN building and sit on a bench and eat it and watch the, at that point, the East River was terribly polluted. <laughs> Pollution flowed up and down and saying, what has happened to me and how did I get here? But it was actually a great experience. Uh, then moved to the, the, the Midwest uh, to, uh, 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 to Chicago, we, we divided the country into four parts and I went out to do the, the cancer uh, education, cancer prevention control part for the Midwest in Chicago. And then from Chicago, um, I was traveling an awful lot and we had children at that point and I wanted to spend a little bit more time at home. So I accepted a job in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, it was one of the first grants from the National Cancer Institute to a community that did not go through a university. It was directly to build this thing called the Community uh, Clinical Oncology Program. And so I took on the role of director of that. We moved to Grand Rapids, had a wonderful experience. It was it was really a, a great opportunity and continued to do that work uh, in Michigan, moving to uh, Kalamazoo to do the same thing, working with community hospitals and oncologists, uh, 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 cancer physicians. And then following that, um, I took a job uh, at the University of Kentucky. I, I moved to Kentucky in 1984. And uh, in, in the meantime, while, I'm sorry, while I was in, uh, in Michigan, I got my master's degree in public health with emphasis in epi and biostats from the University of Michigan. And then uh, I came to Kentucky, I actually came in a tenure track position with a master's degree, which is a little unusual. I think they they just didn't see that I didn't have a P. No, I'm just kidding. Um, they they uh, 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 accepted me and I began my teaching and research career. And then during that time, I actually uh, did earn a doctorate degree. Um, I, my undergraduate degree is in political science. And I forgot to tell you What's somebody do with a degree in political science? So, so, so the experience with the American Cancer Society was really sentinel for me. It's one of those really important. Um, but it's actually very interesting. I, I didn't, and your degree was political science and communications, right? So yeah, that's correct. It did, it did apply and, and certainly has, has helped in terms of your verbal issues and your, your writing, which is spectacular. But I had actually did not know that you had this long history uh, with the ACS, and uh, and that's a yeah. great story as to how you came into cancer. But you've spent most of your career now at the University of Kentucky since 1984. So walk us through that piece. So I ca I came um, and uh, taught uh, the I, I was the first instructor to teach undergraduate courses in epidemiology, and so my early probably 10 years at UK was teaching health services management. Um, and, and uh, uh, ep uh, uh, introductory epidemiology courses. But then we decided that uh, at the university, we wanted to build a college of public health. And I was asked if I would put together, at that point I'd earned my doctorate degree uh, in, and it, it is in medical sociology with the emphasis on dem demography. So it's same as 
epidemiology, same kinds of backgrounds that, that, that you need. And so I took on that role as the, the person to put together. I'm the founding chair of the Department of Epidemiology here. And that was incredibly rewarding. It's been a really wonderful little department. We were one of the first uh, colleges of public health in the United States. I mean, and we're talking about Harvard and Johns Hopkins. Uh, we were one of the first to get full CEF is the accrediting body, full seven-year accreditation without any codicils on our first try. Um, and I think part of that was uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Wyatt was then the Dean and he really uh, quite knowledgeable and he had uh, certainly pushed me to think through issues of, of curriculum alignment, uh, uh, some of the things that were important at that time. So that's been really, really a wonderful way to go. But I also came to work in the Market Cancer Center and, uh, and worked with uh, Dr. Wyatt uh, at, uh, earlier and then then took on his role as the Associate Director of uh, Cancer Prevention and Control and was in that role for almost 20 years. I began in, in roughly 2000 and just recently stepped down uh, as part of a long planned transition. Uh, so, so I think what happened during that time was really interesting. Uh, uh, Dr. Mark Evers came to take over the leadership of the Markey Cancer Center. And if you don't know him, you need to get to know him because he is a wonderful human being and he's a really good cancer center director. I'm going toward retirement, so I get nothing for this. But I mean, I really have enjoyed. And, and I guess that's one of the things I want to say about thinking about careers. I have been blessed with working with some of the nicest mentors. Uh, even in my early days in Kansas City with the ACS, there was this lovely woman, her name was uh, Carol Yon, who was the director of the unit. Then, at then, county units were a big part of the ACS. It's changed organizationally tremendously since then. But she was such a thoughtful, uh, kind, and knowledgeable mentor. It was a great way to start. And then in, in New York City, um, a guy named uh, <clears throat> Dr. Walter James was my uh, uh, boss and mentor. And I, I just, again, a wonderful person who you learned a lot from. Moving then to Grand Rapids, there was a medical oncologist named Ed Moorhead. And oh my gosh, what, he had such a huge influence on my life. He was Irish, he could write so beautifully. And he, uh, he was really interesting in his relationships. Uh, very, very skilled. I learned lots from Ed. So it's been, it's been wonderful. And, and now I have the pleasure of working with people like you and, uh, and uh, Mark Evers. Uh, so that's been really, really rewarding. I must say that during this, there have been sentinel moments and my work has changed a little bit from being just sort of a, a general cancer epidemiologist to a bit more of a molecular epidemiologist. And that's been quite rewarding as well. Well, that, that's gonna be a topic we'll talk about, your VTR, if you will, which is really amazing. Uh, but uh, Mark's gonna be a, a guest on the podcast later on down the road. So we'll be looking forward to Dr. Evers and his uh, leadership as he's done at this great NCI designated hospital. So just speaking of leadership, if you don't mind for a second, uh, the, the thing about leadership, and I've watched it for many years and certainly had people, is it's not so much about you as an individual and what you know, but it's how you can bring people together. And that is his gift. He is so good at getting people to work across disciplines, uh, to bring together people to focus on on the issues at hand. Uh, it, it, it is truly a gift if you watch it, and he's, he's quite skilled at it. So, so walk us through how an epidemiologist goes on to become one of the most famous cancer registry 
inventors, founders, uh, expanders uh, in the nation, up to and including the Cal MS Muir Award for North America in 2002, which you received in Toronto. You've done some amazing work. First of all, help our listeners understand the importance of a cancer registry, what it is, and how you've been able to evolve that in Kentucky. So I think the best way to understand it is, is just, I'll just give you a little bit about my history. So when I was in New York on the American Cancer Society national staff, one of the things that troubled me, and this was in the, the uh, uh, early 1970s, it was prior to the passage of the National Cancer Act, there were no national surveillance programs. And it just occurred to me that there's no data to guide where we put our resources are to measure whether or not we're having any impact. We're running around doing things, but we really don't know whether it matters or not. And I think that sort of initiated or was the spark that started my interest in moving toward uh, population science and epidemiology um, as a career. Um, so as, as time evolved while I was in, in Michigan, uh, working on that that uh, community clinical oncology program, uh, I partnered with a uh, uh, dear friend, Dr. Randy Thompson. He's a pulmonologist here in Lexington now, but uh, we developed one of the early surveillance systems that was computerized. And we modeled this surprisingly after the real estate industry where you could go in and you could use their computers and you could tell them how many bedrooms, bathrooms, um, size, square feet, and you could sort out the houses. So we used that to be able to sort out different kinds of cancer patients and then, of course, uh, track their survival over time. And so that was one of the reasons I was recruited to the University of Kentucky was to help build a population-based surveillance system for, for the Commonwealth. Now, the reason that's important is if you don't have population data, you're going to be working with what we term a sample of convenience. You just get people to come together. And there are still, unfortunately, way too many people that think, well, if I get enough of them, you know, if I get a big sample, that it, it, it erases the bias of not having a true population sample. And what we've discovered is that is absolutely not true that big data, all we find in big data is the bias grows proportionate to the data size. And unless you have an underlying population, you don't have what we call external validity. In other words, you can't take the findings from your study and generalize them to the population. They only mean something to the people who happen to be in the study, and that's way too limited. In fact, if you look at clinical trials, you'll find that what we find in a clinical trial almost never works in the general population. And the reason is because the people in the clinical trial don't look like the people in the general population. And so population science helps erase that, that bias and it really does elevate the science. So I'm pretty passionate about applying those tools to our understanding because I believe it's the only way we're going to move our scientific knowledge forward. Well, that's a broad background. Tell us what that means for the average person out there in terms of how well we understand what cancer is doing in Kentucky, for example, but this would certainly apply to other states. How does that help us narrow our focus? Or in, in your case, uh, I think you've always 
use the, the magnifying glass and the eyes and the binoculars. Help the average person understand how that cancer registry really makes a difference for us in our, as physicians and for them as patients. Sure. So um, I, I appreciate that question and I appreciate the analogy to it being the eyes of any kind of cancer uh, prevention and control program. Think about that. If you don't have information, detailed, accurate information on who gets cancer, what kinds of cancers they get, where they, where they, where they live geographically, um, their age, their gender, certainly race and ethnicity can be an issue. How do you know where you're going to apply or need to apply your limited cancer prevention and control dollars? You're just going to guess. And I promise you, you will guess wrong more than you'll guess right. And that's expensive. So having that data allows us to focus on the populations with the greatest need and to apply our evidence-based interventions uh, to really make a difference in those populations. More importantly, how do you know whether those efforts really mattered? Well, having that population-based data allows us to see whether or not there are changes in the population over time. And it's, if you think about it, it's just critical. It, it, is, it is crazy not to do that. You are working blind. You are, and, and without going into this in too much detail, there are many studies that show when you don't have the data to drive your uh, uh, interventions toward the populations of greatest need and you don't use the data to measure the impact, sometimes you actually have a negative impact, not a positive impact. So just saying, gee, we had 150 programs. Well, did anybody do? In fact, I learned that early on in my career. I, I uh, had a, there was a cervical cancer effort and we got this movie the ACS had developed about the uh, having a pap test. Uh, it was back in the um, early 70s in Kansas City, Missouri. Got it in, in 11 theaters across the state. We had a, I don't know, a bunch of people come. And so I went to my lovely boss. I, I told you about her before. And I, she said, well, how did it go? I said, it was a tremendous success. We had 11 theaters and, and many thousand people came. And she said, well, did anybody get a pap test as a result of that? I have no idea. And it was just such a, a sentinel moment to say, oh my gosh, that's a good point. I don't know, maybe they didn't, maybe, maybe we scared them and maybe they'll never go to a physician again. So it's really critical to do that. If we really want to be serious about it, not, how do we even have a clue whether we make a difference if you don't have tools like that? And I think now in Kentucky, we're quite fortunate because we have some of the better tools for, for measuring cancer in the population and the uh, issues uh, related to it. Well, before we get into some of the new tools that you've actually developed and are, are really responsible for, did you have any connection to cancer in your family that helped motivate you or guide you into this? I know that I know you personally, so I know that you've not had cancer, but certainly cancer has become this huge focus. What in your background might have led you toward that thing other than the numbers? Well, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this happened... Uh, because I was in need of work. And uh, that old adage of if you find something you love to do, you'll never work another day in your life really has applied. And people talk about what, what, why don't you retire? Well, if I'm still competent, my wife tells me I'll be the last to know. Um, 
if I'm still competent and I'm enjoying it, why do I want to retire? I mean, I like doing this. It's very satisfying. So I'm, I'm blessed in that way. But along that journey, um, my, my mother developed a melanoma. And uh, I was at that point at the American Cancer Society, and we were able to get her some uh, sentinel research treatment at Kansas City. I won't go into the details of that. That was pretty successful. But subsequently, um, in her mid-80s, my mom succumbed to colorectal cancer. Um, it was diagnosed at advanced stage. And, uh, and, and, and I think that certainly continues to motivate me. Uh, one of the reasons that I've enjoyed working with the Colon Cancer Prevention Project and with you is, is that it's so clear that we have one of the best screening tools available in cancer in the world in trying to de define that and identify that disease before it becomes disease. The precancerous conditions remove those adenomatous polyps and actually prevent the disease. We can show from our own data, it's very sensitive, that we reduce the incidence rates dramatically uh, by doing that. So knowing my mom's circumstance certainly uh, helps. Um, but I have to be honest and say I really felt greatly rewarded and blessed to be able to do this work before that happened. So, <clears throat> And because of your mom's history, of course, uh, as the doctor, I'm allowed, you've done your screening and you're vigilant. Is that correct? I, I, uh, I hope she doesn't mind. I took my wife for a colonoscopy yesterday morning. So uh, uh, yeah, we, we uh, and, and my, my mother's uh, colon cancer was diagnosed at 86. And so what we know about that is that at, at, at that age, it doesn't necessarily suggest that it was genetic. You usually see those diseases present themselves a bit earlier, but my primary care physician has suggested that I should be on the five-year cycle. Of, you can tell me if that's okay. I love him. I think he's a good guy, and that, that seems to have worked for us well. Very good. Um, when it comes to the work that you've, you've been able to do, one of the biggest things that you really love has been teaching. And you have a, a little bit of philosophy about that. And uh, I think part of it is, is your service and then part of it is your philosophy on teaching. So can you talk to us a little bit about your philosophy when it comes to, let's start with service, because when I read through your uh, resume and your CV, you, you've worked on multiple international committees, multiple national committees. You know, that service is a key part of who Tom Tucker is. Where does service fit into your philosophy? Well, I guess there's a couple of things to say. When you're, when you're in a university, in the academy, there are three legs to the stools that we sit on. Some of us stand on them, not too wise. Uh, and one of them is research, one of them is teaching, and one of them is service. And so those are things that we're expected to do. In the service arena, what we're talking about is serving on review panels for grants, reviewers for journal articles, uh, participating in, in the professional organizations and taking on leadership roles. And in fact, if you think about our, our, our cancer research enterprise, it's almost impossible to imagine how it would function without us taking those responsibilities seriously. And I have, and I've particip participated in a number of them. 
but I have to tell you that selfishly, you get huge advantage from doing that. If you uh, <clears throat> participate in review panels, in, in, in NIH review panels, you learn how the process works. You learn what people are looking for in grants and contracts. You uh, be, develop a network of, of, of colleagues over time uh, that are, are, are beyond just your, your own institution. Um, if you review grant articles, you get the benefit of seeing new ideas, um, how they're presented. It certainly helps your writing. So there's great benefit from that. Same thing happens in participating in, in uh, professional organizations and taking on leadership roles. You gain those same kinds of, of experiences. And <clears throat> I've always taken that seriously, and I've really enjoyed uh, uh, that, that aspect of it. But your teaching method is also fascinating, and it goes back to an ancient uh, piece, which is in, in medicine, they say, watch one, do one, teach one. Uh, and I think that links a little bit to the, the method you talk about. Talk about your philosophy in education, because you've certainly grown a whole bunch of academics and uh, public health leaders through your career. Well, I, I think the best way to tell you about that is to tell you about my first my first effort, <laughs> I, I came to Kentucky from pra practice background, working in hospitals on cancer prevention control and managing uh, um, NIH NCI uh, grant-related research projects. And um, so I uh, prepared my first lecture. This was an hour and 15-minute lecture, and I invited my department chair to come and sit in and give me critique. And I wanted this to be a really good lecture. I had a stem winder of a lecture. I mean, it was just awesome. And as the students had walked out of the room, my, my chair was sitting in the back and I walked up to him and I said, well, what did you think? And he said, Tom, let's go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> and, and he essentially told me that 27 concepts in an hour and 15 minutes was 26 too many. And I realized at that moment, I told him everything I know. I don't have anything to say for the next 27 lectures. Uh, and it was, uh, it was sort of that sentinel moment where you realize, you know, I need to think more about how people learn, how they receive information, how they process it, and a little bit less about me talking at them. And that, that sort of set me on this path of, it's not that good lectures aren't important, they are. We have to do that. So to some degree, you have to communicate effectively uh, uh, critical information. But one of the ways that most people learn is through doing, through having the exper experience of working with the ideas and not just hearing about them. This is a particularly true in statistics. You can learn about uh, how to create a, a logistic regression model and, and run it in your, in your SAS program. Uh, but until you actually apply it to a circumstance that's relative for you, and that usually happens in somebody's thesis or dissertation, um, it's, it's really hard to get your head around why this is such a valuable uh, tool for, for, this, for science. So, so in my teaching, I've tried to introduce two concepts. One is that Socratic method that you alluded to earlier, uh, and that means that you're going to engage students more in a dialogue and a little bit less in a lecture, and uh, getting them to think about, uh, answer, address questions, uh, uh, engage in a debate over issues. And it's, it's, it's through that that you really learn the more nuanced and complex 
uh, uh, aspects of any concept that you're trying to present. And then in, in, in the coursework, I've also tried to include then major exercises. An example is when I teach cancer epidemiology, I uh, provide students with the data set. Uh, um, they need to do some statistical survival analysis. I'm not going to get into the details of that and, and, and write about it. And it's an actual project where they're comparing the survival of people with the cancer they're interested in in Appalachia to non-Appalachia, controlling for a group of variables. Then what I have them do is they, they actually um, do a paper on that, but we also ask them to do a poster and we take the posters and they have to come and stand by their posters. We put them in the atrium of the cancer center and we have, I've selected a panel who juries them, goes around and, and we get prizes. And it's really been quite, quite rewarding to do that. And students actually re respond quite well to that. Uh, is it extra work? Yeah, it's a lot of extra work, but is it worth it? Sure it is. I mean, I want them to walk away being able to do this. And the value of having them do those kinds of projects, that's just one example. I do it in all of my courses, um, is, is, is that when they get to that thesis or dissertation, they have a real good feeling for how I apply these tools to my question. So that's, that's my what's, philosophy came out of my experience. So well, once people understand the process, that next step of turning ideas and work into impact is really one of the most challenging pieces. Do you have a tip for people about how do you take a great idea and turn it into change with impact? Because uh, as I think we both know, ideas are a dime a dozen. Uh, action is a lot harder to obtain. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. I don't have wisdom for how, how to do that. Um, I, I think there are people who are motivated to make things happen. I think there are people who have the, the will and the tenacity to stick with it. I know you have great experience with that. And there have been things that have by random blind luck work out well, but I remember how hard some of them were to get in place, just to get them started and to get the concepts. Uh, and sometimes it takes quite a long time uh, to get those pro projects in place. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the virtual tissue repository, and then we're going to finish by talking about some of the challenges that we continue to face in the Commonwealth of Kentucky really generalizable to the Appalachian and the, the Southeast and, and to America. But tell us about this virtual tissue repository because you and I both share a, a, a real interest in new technology, genetics, genomics. We both feel that this is the key to us solving some of these puzzles and some of these challenges that we face. This virtual tissue repository is, is an incredible idea, but if you could walk folks through it briefly so they understand, and, and are we the only guys that have this? Are we the leaders in the nation in this development? Well, right now, I, let me just start with the beginning of this. Uh, back up just a little less than two decades ago, we discovered that we could do full genome sequencing on formal fixed paraffin embedded tissue. And for lay people, what that means is whenever there are surgeries or biopsies of any patients, the tissue from those surgeries or biopsies are fixed in a, in, in a substance called formalin and they're placed in a paraffin block. And the American uh, uh, College of Pathology 
um, College of American Pathology, CAP, uh, requires that they retain those tissue blocks for, for adults for at least 10 years. And those are used if you have to go back and look and see if there's something in the tissue that we need to understand more fully. Uh, it certainly guides the way we make treatment decisions about how we take care of those patients. And we're used to sharing that information. So uh, when, when I heard about that, um, uh, and read some papers on it, it occurred to me that this was really a game changer. And it's a game changer related to population science. Before, all those studies where you'd get fresh tissue from your friend who is a surgeon, and you'd do your lab studies, and you'd find something, and we have no idea whether it was just the people who happened to be in that sample. Who did it apply to? Did it apply to everybody? Did it only work in women or men? Or did it only work in old people or young people? Or did it happen in a certain geographic area where there may have been an environmental exposure contributing to this? We could answer none of those questions, not one of them. But thinking about that population-based cancer surveillance system, in Kentucky we have a really wonderful thing, it's called the Kentucky Cancer Registry, that records detailed information uh, by statute <clears throat> on every single cancer case that's diagnosed or treated in the state. And as such, and it's not just the names, it's, it, it, in fact, when, when I began this work back in the 1990s uh, uh, here, um, the, the standard data set was about 240 pieces of information on each of those cases. Today, it's more than 200, I'm sorry, more than 780 variables could be collected on an individual case. So it's really quite a, a, a detailed data set that allows us to learn from them. And so it, over the years has become from a rich population-based data set, the sort of the ideal uh, way of understanding the disease in the population. But because we also have the path reports for all of those patients, we know where that tissue is stored. Uh, from the surgeries or biopsies. And the registry, because it is an official designated state agency, uh, can go to those institutions and negotiate for getting access to those tissue blocks. And then we have to be very respectful of those because most institutions want to keep them uh, for the time periods they're required to. So we do things like shave off a little bit of the material, make new what are called H&E slides, and, and then we return those blocks in a timely fashion. And we make, we're very careful not to destroy all the tissue. And then we use that to do whole genome sequencing. We can also uh, identify in those tissues a wide variety of uh, protein expressions. These are signaling molecules that are important in the, in the onset and, and, and recurrence of of, of all cancers. And, uh, and, and so it's just this rich way of looking at these issues that we only had on a sample of convenience, now in a whole population. And we have done that. Uh, uh, we, we really, I have to say, this is one of the things that I really pushed on for over a decade. And it took a while to get an audience to really listen uh, but now the National Cancer Institute is fully supporting this and uh, we're funded by them to do this along with six other of the National Cancer Institute, what we call surveillance epidemiology and end results registries. So it's going to be 
a game changer for how we do the science. We're gonna be able to answer some of those questions that I, I mentioned earlier. And it really does elevate the science by having uh, what we call external validity or a population-based sample frame. Well, persistence clearly is one of the elements. If, you know, I would suggest <clears throat> that many of your projects took a decade or longer to fully yeah. bloom, no, yeah. if you will, and become. So that's a really important element for, for all of these. these. These don't happen in a day. They happen because of an idea. But sometimes great results happen by accident. Is that right, Tom? <laughs> tell us about, is, yeah. tell us about well, one of your so recent accidents that's turned into a success. So we, um, how do I want to say this? Uh, there are a number of examples of where random blind luck is your best, uh, your best scientific tool. Um, and you, thinking about the registry as a, a population-based uh, virtual tissue repository, um, the National Cancer Institute had a program, uh, this has been about 10 years ago, called uh, Exceptional Survivors. And the idea was they put uh, about $100 million in it. And the idea was to develop drugs to keep people al alive a little bit longer. You know, two or three months was considered success. Um, and it bothered me that putting $100 million to keep somebody alive and make them really sick for two or three months may not have been the best use of the money. So thinking about, again, this population-based sample frame, we have all the cases where I was able to look in that database and identify a population of um, non-small cell lung cancer cases. This is still the most common cancer in the world um, who had advanced disease at the time of diagnosis and had yet survived over five years. That's long-term survival for lung cancer patients. And I termed them not exceptional, but extraordinary survivors. And um, we were able to match that smaller cohort of long-term survivors from the very large pool of people, I think the median survive, more than half the patients with lung cancer still currently will, will succumb to the disease within one year of their diagnosis. So there's a huge pool of patients who did not live a long time. So we matched them on important characteristics, the cell type, um, making sure the stage was identical, making sure the gender and the age and the race and the treatment was exactly the same for each of the matched sets. When you have a small cohort, you don't have the option of doing this mathematically. You have to use pair matching. There's no other real way to do it. Then we went, used the tissue repository, got the tissue blocks from the uh, 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 original uh, surgeries or biopsies for all of these patients. And the idea was to do whole genome sequencing and, and, and do what's called a gene differential analysis to understand what's different in the genetic structure of the long-term survivors versus the short-term survivors. Well, for some reason, uh, when the uh, oncogenics core uh, actually analyzed them, they did RNA, not DNA. And RNA in formalin fixed tissue uh, takes a lot more of the tissue. And so by the time they had done that, all the tissue was gone and we couldn't do the DNA. And I was very upset. I thought, oh, this is gonna destroy our study. Well, it turns out it's the best thing we could have possibly done. We identified in that a not ever previously reported long non-coding RNA sequences. So RNA is something that for sim simplicity's sake, you can think about it lining up of your DNA and producing something like a, a protein. This particular long non-coding RNA sequence suppressed the 
production of a protein that's associated with the uh, spread of lung cancer within a human body. And, and, and so we're, we're really interested in, in, the, in this particular idea and how it might uh, be used to guide treatment choices in the day of precision medicine, but also how it might be used to figure out how to uh, suppress the uh, occurrence or the activity of this protein in the patients who had short-term survival to see if we can extend their survival. So, so that random blind luck led to a really uh, potentially important finding. And a patent is my understanding, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we were encouraged to, we, we, we have to do a larger study to prove the efficacy and stability of this is common practice in doing this and it's the right thing to do. And so we were applying for that and the university strongly advised us to uh, apply for a patent because this is potentially valuable. I, I, I never think about the world that way. This is the first time I've ever been engaged in anything like that, but uh, yeah, we, we actually applied for a patent for it. Well, that's amazing. Great story. And given that lung cancer is one of our greatest burdens uh, in the country, as well as particularly here in Kentucky, I'm sure that that research will lead to saving lives down the road. We sure hope so. Let's shift a little bit into Kentucky. You've talked about Appalachia a couple of times. Uh, tell us about how an epidemiologist sees the Appalachian region of Kentucky, but more generally, uh, in terms of its healthcare disparities and its outcomes. And I know that we've spent a lot of money on Appalachian studying it years and years. There's a lot of frustration about that. How are we going to solve that puzzle? Well, I don't, I'm, 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 I'm really sure I'm not the person who knows how we're going to solve the puzzle, but I can give you a, uh, some information about that population. So, so one of the things that population scientists, epidemiologists do is they, 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 they look at populations as a whole rather than individuals. Like individual clinicians look at the individual person. We look at whole populations. How does the disease spread? What causes the disease? What things might prevent the disease? Um, and, and so um, in looking at the Appalachian population, they have exceptionally high uh, cancer incidence and mortality rates, particularly in the areas of lung and colorectal cancer. Those are, the, and others uh, such as cervical cancer are also very high, although cervical cancer is a bit less common disease. Uh, lung and colorectal are among the most common diseases. And, and so those high rates of cancer uh, don't happen by random accident. And so looking in the population, what characteristics are associated with them? One of the things that we know is, is issues of <clears throat> poverty or low educational attainment lead to risk behaviors that have consequences. And those risk behaviors can be smoking. They can be not being screened for, for the certain cancer. And in turn, those risk behaviors affect the incidence or mortality of the disease or stage of diagnosis and ultimately lead to mortality. So <clears throat> if you look at the Appalachian population, it's unfortunately marked by high rates of, of uh, poverty and low educational attainment and limited, uh, much more limited access to health care. Um, and, and it becomes a, a, a more challenging population. Those things certainly contribute to the high rates. But our own investigations show that those alone don't account for the extraordinary high rates. Um, 
For example, with lung cancer, we have rates in some of the area development districts in Eastern Appalachian, Kentucky, that are more than twice the uh, incidence rates of the U.S. Uh, the incidence rates are about 58 per 100,000 in the U.S. And in some areas, it's over 120,000 in, in, in Appalachian, Kentucky. Now, smoking is related to that. I'm sorry, it just is. Um, but it doesn't explain all of these extraordinary rates. The smoking rate is not high enough to double that rate. But what we know about smoking is while it is a huge risk factor, there are other risk factors. Radon is a risk factor. Asbestos is a risk factor. Exposure to carcinogenic metals like arsenic, chromium, cadmium, nickel, also are carcinogenic for lung cancer. And this is an area in which those exposures, uh, particularly uh, for things like, like um, um, arsenic, um, uh, nickel, cadmium, uh, and they're in the environment. There's a geologic layer that lies over the coal beds. The coal beds are bituminous coal, which has some of this in it, and somehow this gets into the system. Now, alone, those risk factors are not nearly as significant as smoking. So if you think about this, smoking, a smoker has 11 to 15 times the chance, the, the odds of getting lung cancer compared to a non-smoker. But if, if a smoker is exposed to asbestos, that rate goes to 300 times. So it's the synergistic effect that we think is, is driving some of these high rates. We get a similar impact uh, in the Appalachian area uh, for colorectal cancer. Um, and, and because of the efforts of, of uh, all of us, and certainly you, Dr. Jones, leading it, but the Colon Cancer Prevention Project, uh, uh, the Kentucky Cancer Consortium, the Kentucky Cancer Program, the State Department for Public Health, the American Cancer Society has been huge in this. Uh, working together, we've had some real impact on it, but we have to realize that we have challenges. One of the things that, that we're doing here, again, driven by that collective enterprise, is, is trying to screen people at a younger age. The historic records uh, reference points has been starting your, your colorectal cancer screening at 50. But <clears throat> uh, we have looked at the data. Um, again, you have encouraged me to do that, and I'm grateful for that, and identified that the age uh, the, the rate of, of colorectal cancer in people who are 20 to 49 below that traditional is very high in Kentucky and exceptionally high. It's really highest in the Appalachian area. And what drives that is very likely some genetic predisposition for the disease. I mean, we can get into lots of history and why, but those genetic drivers cause the disease to come on earlier, and so if we're going to prevent it by finding polyps or something and removing it, or identifying it in an early stage when our treatments are more effective, we have to screen at a younger age. So in Kentucky, uh, again, collectively working together, we have adopted the American Cancer Society rate of 45 as a starting rate, but some people think it should be even lower, especially given the very high rate of disease in this uh, 20 to 49 year old would, would you be able to use this virtual, uh, not the repository per se, but the registry to identify people then to reach out to their family members, uh, particularly to get 
to, to folks screened who need to be screened before 45. Because I see that as one of the greatest challenges and our missed opportunities is really having that conversation with people in their 30s or by 40. Could the, could, could the registry help with that identification and, and reaching out with information? Can, sure, is that thought, a bridge? Yeah, we, well, we've thought about ways in which to do this. Uh, and, and the issue is being screened for genetic predisposition to the disease. And uh, you know, because of your efforts, and I uh, was lucky enough to get to work with you and, and uh, 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 our wonderful uh, lobbyist, uh, uh, Jason Baird, uh, uh, on getting some legislation passed, making screening a covered uh, uh, resource for private insurers in the state. Uh, what, what happens is there are a, a set of cancers for which you should have genetic screening. And we focus on those, the, the, the NCCN uh, has developed guidelines for who those are. And one of the things we've thought about, it's a little bit tricky. We have to be very careful about patient confidentiality and we are extremely careful about that. But identifying the people who have those diseases and those types of cancer that require genetic screening. Uh, most of our, uh, only about 10% are actually screened. Uh, so, and then using that as a vehicle to contact them and encourage them to seek genetic counseling and, and screening for, for the, which could help them and their family. So that's kind of one of the ways we've We've thought about it. We haven't, we haven't actually worked out the mechanisms for implementing it, but I, I think that's really possible and, uh, and, and an excellent, and, and I, another idea uh, emanating from you, my friend. So thank you for that. Well, and it wouldn't necessarily be that we would have to just do genetic screening. We could just make sure they get screened with an appropriate test and most high risk people would be screened with a colonoscopy, but have that screening performed <clears throat> on time. Uh, yeah. information just came out of San Diego that of the folks in a large VA study, only 3% of people with elevated risk were screened on time. That is not the record we're looking for. So we've got to yeah, find a I way to change that. I think that's probably true in a much broader population. I mean, we don't know for sure, but I think explaining, I was thinking a little bit more generically uh, about a screening panel because colon cancer is certainly one of them. And, uh, and of course, the American founder gene or Lynch syndrome is well known uh, um, in, in this country. Uh, it's something we can look at, but there are other, other issues that we might want to explore. But I think colon cancer is one of those diseases where because of this potential higher genetic predisposition in Kentucky, this might be something we really need to explore doing. Finally, in terms of Kentucky and many of the southeastern states, but uh, certain populations, particularly American Indians. Talk to us about how we're going to solve some of these disparities that are going to lead us to better cancer outcomes. Because many times we hear that a person's zip code is more important than their family history. It's a large challenge, but I think to your point, big data is going to be part of that solution. As an epidemiologist who's looking into the future as a thought leader, how might we begin to address some of these issues? What are the biggest challenges and the greatest opportunities? 
So I always believe we start with what we know, and we do know that there are disparities, and we know a little bit about the characteristics of the people who are not being screened and the challenges of reaching them. What we also know is that our standard, wonderfully effective middle-class approach to this will not work for this population. It's just that we've tried, and what's the definition of insanity? If you keep doing what you're already doing and expect a different result, uh, and so we're, we, we're not going to be able to, to reach, and in, in Kentucky, unfortunately, we have a, a larger proportion of the population who live under the federal poverty guidelines, and that's quite large. It's, it's, it's over 25% of the population of the Appalachian area of Kentucky live below the federal poverty guidelines. And that creates all kinds of problems that, that, that those individuals have to face that others may not. So if you either lack insurance or maybe the knowledge about what your insurance can do for you and you lack financial resources to have the vehicle to get to the services uh, uh, are, are, are certainly to pay for them or a copay. It, it, it can be challenging. So, so you also have people who just uh, by, by experience are, are more deferent to others, uh, maybe have a more fatalistic view of, of the disease um, and their lives and just don't go and present themselves for screening. That's just not part of their experience or culture. How do you move that? And so getting somebody to prep, um, I uh, just got to watch that uh, day before yesterday, <laughs> uh, is, is, is not, it's not an easy thing. Um, and, and so getting people to actually do that who are in these circumstances who may have jobs that they can't leave for a day, they don't have uh, a weekend service available to them, these are challenges. So maybe making those services available on weekends or other times would help, but it's very likely that we're going to have to use a different approach to screening. And we have attempted to do that using uh, fecal occult blood tests. Um, the more, uh, as we've gone on, we have now uh, blood tests that look more at the DNA and not just whether or not there's blood in the stool. And those are considered a little bit more sensitive and uh, maybe getting and convincing this population that we're missing to use those tools to screen is going to be uh, something, we, we know it's something we're going to have to do, but how to do that is really important. And just telling people they need to do this is not going to work. And I just can't make this, I can't say this loud enough. We have libraries of evidence that if you just say it to somebody and expect them to do it, it doesn't work. You need to, and you need to have at least the voice be one that's credible. So one of the tools that we've learned over the last 40 years is that using uh, indigenous people, people who are your friends or neighbors or, or are highly regarded from your church as lay health navigators and saying, gee, Bob, you know, you really, you really do need to take the screening test has been a really important tool for trying to reach uh, more challenging populations, populations that have greater disparities. And I think unless we embrace those tools that we know about and start implementing them, uh, we're not going to go forward. We're going to have exactly what we have now. And in fact, we kind of know that from the data, our, our, our screening rates have gone flat. We've done remarkably well. I just, but 
we're now up against a much more challenging population. We have to change our approach to adapt to what works within that population. <clears throat> Finally, one of the most important things about working with a population like that is asking them what, 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 what affects them and listening to their answers. Uh, so engaging them, when we talk about community engagement, we really mean that. We mean asking them to participate in how we're going to go about solving this problem. Well, as an epidemiologist, if you were to answer this question, the most important part of a successful cancer fight is what? I, it's a great question, but I just really have one answer. Getting people to work together. You're not going to solve this by yourself. One organization, is, <coughs> one organization is not going to solve this by itself. It's getting people to work together. And I think that's one of the things that we've been successful in doing in Kentucky uh, that uh, to, at a level that many other states have not. Uh, we really do work together to try to address our energies and the different skills we bring to focus on it. But if you do not collaborative work together, we will not succeed. There's the, to me, that's the critical apex for any kind of change uh, is getting people together to work effectively and communicate effectively, uh, addressing the health disparity that you want to address. Well, it's been a very interesting and enlightening time we've spent together. Tom Tucker, epidemiologist, associate, former associate director of the Markey Cancer Center, a true cancer fighter, uh, nationally and internationally, but we want to keep him here working with us in Kentucky. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy morning to join us and share your story on Cancer Fight. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Jones. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us today on Cancer Fight. To keep up with our work, follow Colon Cancer Prevention Project on all major social media platforms and visit our website, kickingbutt.org. Special thanks to our producer, Keaton Jones, and our director, Maggie Cunningham. Until next time, fight on, cancer warriors.